Heads. I feel wrong saying that because this feels like Danny's catchphrase, but this is producer Jake. Hell of a catchphrase. It's just wrong to say it, no matter whose catchphrase <laughs> it is. People have used it on other podcasts. I think when we were on uh, Katie and Aaron's thing, right? They, I think Katie referred to Prestige Heads. So there you go. Uh, yeah, it's she, sweeping the did. nation. Yeah. We, should do mer- we should do merch. We should have Prestige Head merch. Everyone will be wearing oh it. It'll be sweeping the nation. Soon <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden will have his prestige head merch. Yes. But uh, in any event, you're hearing my beautiful voice today because we're doing a special mailbag episode. And I am going to present these questions, ideas, ramblings, all the wonderful things that our great patrons sent in to us to cover on such an episode today. So yeah, this one's for the little people. <laughs> it's for the little guys. Can't do anything without you. <laughs> so yeah, many thanks as always to our patrons. But I figured I was I actually broke it up into kind of several categories. And I'm gonna start with more personal biographical stuff about Derek and Danny. So you guys ready? Yeah, no, I love revealing things about myself. Sure. That's why I got into the podcast. It doesn't game. It's don't not that like personal. That, so. Not that personal. It's just <laughs> this like it should be a fun mix. Yeah, yeah. what was your birth weight? Um, So, first one from Gavin Farrell is, what are your earliest and most informative or inspiring historical books that inspired you or changed the way you think about things? Uh, Well, I don't know about change the way I think about things, but the first I remember like major historical book uh, that I read was uh, William Shirer's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I think I, I read that at like age 14 or 15. Um, and, uh, I thought that it was a really compelling way to tell history it concerned the Nazis, which is always interesting. Um, and it was extremely well-written and extremely vivid. And so I remember thinking that history would be a good way to tell stories like that. Um, so that was pretty cool in, in terms of changing my mind. Um, I mean, I'm sure my mind has been changed, but, uh, actually I remember think reading my advisor's book, my graduate school advisor's book, uh, his name's Malachi Cohen, and he wrote a book on Karl Popper called Karl Popper, The Formative Years. And I just thought it was an incredibly impressive way to show how intellectual history is able to really speak to the broadest problems of social and political life. And so that was the type of work, uh, that I wanted to do. Uh, mine is cliche, Orientalism, Edward Said's Mm -hmm. Orientalism, um, which, it's cliche because anybody who actually is in the field of like Middle Eastern studies or area studies or many people anyway, uh, you know, think that Saeed uh, covered a lot of ground that, that people had already covered. Um, but I wasn't in that field when I read the book and it, it really uh, was eye opening for me. Uh, um, the other one, probably when I started grad school was uh, a book called The Venture of Islam by Marshall Hodgson, uh, which is the main textbook for the Middle Eastern history series uh, at the University of Chicago um, and has an introduction that's uh, very uh, uh, hard to get through in some ways. It needs a couple of reads, but uh, uh, very, very effectively conveys, I think, uh, a message about the ways that we use language and the ways that we could be... uh, try to use language more effectively uh, to not 
uh, overgeneralize and oversimplify about uh, you know studying parts of the world that uh, maybe we're not not immediately familiar with. Fascinating. Cool. So the next question is from Orbert Melson. On the off chance that either of you were involved in Model UN, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how it might or might not fit within the social reproduction of the actual world of foreign policy. This is good uh, for me because I was not involved in Model UN, so I'm passing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, neither was I, but I've actually thought a bit about Model UN because in my my scholarship, I write about war games and things like that. And, you know, I think um, just to be brief about it, I think projects like that are, are on one hand pretty important because it, they do serve useful pedagogical functions. They, they let people, you know, understand about the world and what's going on, you know, and, and really, you know, play act in a way. But on another hand, they kind of in, encourage Americans to have, you know, views on every single part of the world uh, and to sort of consider like what they could do um, about various world regions. And that in some sense does reproduce the type of imperial privilege that Americans necessarily think that they have. Hmm. I was actually in Model UN and assigned to Somalia. That was sort of an oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting. Uh, sort of an eye-opening experience. They have three major regions, right? I, I've in the last couple of years, I've learned a bit about the Horn. Um, Somalia is extraordinarily interesting. Uh, the history, I think, like various ethnic groups in different regions. We should do an episode on Somalia soon, Absolutely. because remember the whole pirates thing in like the early 2010s. That was like a big issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that's a good idea. Thanks, Jake. And Somaliland and all that. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a super interesting country. Yeah. Um, cool. The last one in this category is of regular popular media, what work of popular fiction is your favorite at portraying foreign policy realistically, or is the answer none? Oh, that that that's to you, Derek, and then I'll have to think for a second. Oh God. Um <laughs> Ender's <nothing>. game. <laughs> it's always a war against all. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Nothing immediately comes to mind. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily realistic, but I thought the three-body problem was pretty interesting, sort of just like putting the sort of theories of deterrence to test on uh, a global sci-fi scale. That was pretty compelling. Um, uh, there's a book, uh, I think the first book in the series is called A Memory Called Empire, which is actually also really interesting because it, it shows the domestic effects of you know, literally how domestic politics shapes, you know, foreign relations again in, in kind of the sci-fi genre idiom. But I, I recently, the last couple of years, for whatever reason, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi more than anything else. Um, and so that's oftentimes really relates to international relations, you know, because it involves planets and expansion and things along those lines. And I've uh, uh, generally enjoyed them uh, quite a bit. I, I've really liked, again, I said the three-body problem. Uh, I really liked N.K. Jemison's uh, series. Um for some reason, the name is escaping me, but her series has been, uh, I thought, been really good. Uh, the Memory Called Empire series has been quite good. Um, and I also liked Anne Leckie's series on, on sort of, um, I forget the name of it also, uh, but on uh, AI ships, which has been really interesting. So yeah, I've been enjoying sci-fi quite a bit. Hmm. Um, I probably would have said Dune, just to be you know as obvious as possible, until we did that <laughs> episode with Dan Emmerwar, and now I'm not sure. I would say that anymore. Yeah, um, that's a really good episode for all you Dune heads out there. If you recently joined, check that out. And the N.K. Jemison series is the Broken Earth series, and the Anne Lecky series is the Ancillary series, if you're interested. Uh, and what, what comes to mind for me in my uh, uh, lifelong quest to punish myself with uh, <laughs> shitty TV shows 
are programs that don't reflect, in fact, the way the foreign policy is actually done, but reflect the way that people in D.C. think it's done. So, you know, crap like the West Wing or uh, even 24, like, you know, the good American going around and breaking shit, but for a good cause and torturing people, but only because we have to and all that stuff. I mean, this is how people really view the way the way the United States conducts foreign policy. And I think that's uh, that's probably, um, uh, I don't know, in a way, I, I find that more compelling because I think people watch programs like that and, and sort of reinforce their own views. It's sort of, I mean, you know, didn't, wasn't there a, like, Scalia or somebody that cited 24 as a defense yeah. of torture or something? Uh, yeah. I mean, this stuff actually seeps Friend into of the, the pod, way these... the ghost of Antonin Scalia. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, this stuff seeps into how these pod people actually approach real life, uh, which is is terrifying. But uh, that's that's more the kind of stuff that comes to mind for me. And it's more domestic policy, I guess, but I've I've heard that Veep is pretty on point for a lot of the dyna- <laughs> a lot of the bullshit in Washington, basically. And yeah, the I, personal I, dynamics. Yeah, I mean, and this raises interesting questions. You know, I talk about this a lot, but I, I think it really is an open question to what degree, you know, to put it me- metaphorically, the algorithm has become conscious, and and to what degree these extraordinarily large systems are really subject to the human will. I mean, in in some sense, I think that, you know, the Marxist insight is that these things become so alienated and they're actually, you know, outside of human will, whether um, ideal, like people imagine them to be or whether they actually are, you know, I think some elements they actually are. And th- that's what's interesting about a show like Veep. Um, you know, it, it sort of it indicates that the personal really does have these world shattering consequences. I'm not sure if that's actually the case, though. Hmm. So here is a question more in the world of ideology. So this is from Carl Thomas. What insights do you think Marxism allows you to have into international relations slash history that a liberal perspective doesn't? And do you think liberalism ever has a more valid framework for understanding events? This is a question for the intellectual historian of the group. <laughs> well, I mean, I think just at the most basic levels that Marxism does suggest a couple of things. Um, first, and and most, you know, vulgarly Marxist, but still extraordinarily important, it does show that economics is really a significant driving factor of history. Um, and so when you think of historians like William Appleman Williams or Walter Lefebvre or Gabriel Kaltko, the sort of classic uh, historians of U.S. foreign relations who wrote a lot in the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, is that they were really inspired by the uh, Marxist idea that, you know, the search for markets, the search for open markets, the search for economic Hegemony was a fundamental driving force of U.S. foreign policy, and I think that's absolutely correct. Um, the, my problem, or uh, it's not even a problem, but you know, my my concern is that I, I do think security thinking and security logics are also crucial driving factors of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and there, that's not to say that's not um, evident in Marxism, particularly the writings of Engels um, do address things like revolution and war. And I'd like to point people to an essay in the volume Makers of Modern Strategy that was originally written by a guy named Sigmund Neumann, a German emigre, and was updated, I believe, by a, a guy named Mark von Hagen called Angles and Marks on Revolution, War, and the Army in Society. Uh, and that's really a nice little summary of sort of Marx's thinking on revolution and war. Um, but I think as, as Marx is generally interpreted, it does underplay uh, security logics, and I think those are absolutely crucial. And now in terms of liberalism, I mean, liberalism matters because people are liberals, and 
they believe in liberal things. So, you know, it's not, in my opinion, at least, um, you, you'll get a lot of sort of the left accusing someone like Samantha Power of like being totally cynical. I don't believe that's true. I think someone like Samantha Power really wants to use, you know, American military might for humanitarian purposes. I don't think it's just a cover for things. And so I think you need to understand the liberal mindset if you're going to explain and, and uh, appreciate the, the course of U.S. foreign policy because people actually uh, believe what they say and they, they believe in these projects. And it's not just bullshit. People really believe in them. And you have to take that seriously. First, if you want to understand why things proceeded as they did. And then second, if you want to change them. Let's go into some predictive kind of hypothetical uh, well, we've been great on the predictive recently, so yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll be productive. We were really uh, ten out of ten, so good. <laughs> yeah, there were there were a lot of these from Brant Donovan Pepin or Pepin. I don't know if this is a French listener. What's a hinge point that would have made no difference to world history, but that you'd still like to have seen happen? Oh, that's a good question. A hinge yeah. point. Uh, I'll repeat the question as I think about it. A hinge point that would have made no real difference to world history but I would have liked to have seen happen. Isn't I mean um, isn't that contradictory like yeah it's, it well then it's not really a hinge. so it's like it? what historical event would I, I i i would have been fun i think to have been in weimar germany i think mm-hmm. that would have been like a really exciting cultural moment where you sort of like it, it felt like things could begin anew again you know obviously it, it, it sort of crashed on the uh the beach of awful horrible nazism but i think like for a time in the 20s you know it really felt like things could could have been different and i think it would have been exciting to be part of that political and intellectual ferment and to some degree it's one of the only instances in, in the North Atlantic world where a genuinely Marxist party ruled for a time. You know, when social Democrats, you know, who who conceived of themselves as Marxists, were um, were governing and were trying to like deal with parliamentary democracy. And it would have it would have been interesting to like feel like you could contribute to a democratic socialist project in in a ruling government. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's where I would choose. Derek, where would you like if you could go back in history? What would it be like? Tenth century Iran. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't want to go back to any time when I'm likely to be dead of disease <laughs> by the age of by the age that I'm at now. Uh, that that's always a drawback for me. Uh, now I was thinking uh, it would be cool to go back to uh, Appomattox and convince uh, Ulysses Grant to beat Robert Lee's ass in like a cage fight or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, or do which, reconstruction which would, would have all been meaningless. Or, well, yeah, do. I mean, that's that would be an actual hinge point. But in terms of something yeah. that you know, might not have mattered. I just like to, you know, see Grant like wail on him uh, for for a good hour there. That would that would be very satisfying. Um, yeah, I don't know if I. I mean, if I had to go back, there are some fascinating times that I studied in grad school, but they all involved like huge massacres of people. You know, the Mongol invasions of the 13th century or the rise of the Safavids in Iran in the 16th century. And uh, I, I don't think that would be a very good time to live in, uh, even though I was really fascinated by those periods and, and uh, enjoyed studying them. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's not, not, not to my liking. Yeah. I think for vibes, it would have been interesting to be in Andalusia in like the time of um, Maimonides and stuff. It just seems like a really interesting cosmopolitan place. But yeah, that, that would have been, been interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, debatable how unique it was. I think the scholarship has shifted a bit on that um, mm. recently, contemporarily. Uh, but yeah, that that would have been a that would have been an okay place to be in, I guess, relatively peaceful. Uh, 
relatively uh, urbanized, that, that that wouldn't have been bad. Yeah, but like you said, if you if you if you think too realistically about it, it very quickly gets <laughs> gets pretty sour. Like I mean, that's in- the thing. Every time you know somebody is like, I want to go back and live in you know uh, the 13th century, they think they're they're going to be the you know king of wherever they're thinking about, and and in reality, you're going to be farming dirt uh, yeah. and dying of of disease at a very young age. Yeah, I'm a Jew with like weird food allergies. Like, I don't think I would last very long in any of these places <laughs> at all. Well, um, uh, sort of medieval Spain, you would have been okay. I would have been all right. Been a, a good place to be. Yeah, probably, probably one of the better places. Here's a predictive from SM21. How do you expect the role of public intellectuals in the U.S. to change, if at all, in the next few decades? It's difficult to know. I mean, like... um, I think it's difficult to know. I, I mean, the, the big transformation, of course, has been social media. Um, but that big transformation has also come a- along with the fact that sort of all the work that one does as a public intellectual on Twitter isn't, isn't, um, uh, not commodified, isn't compensated. Um, so that's a big thing. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest change will be that, you know, the working class public intellectual b- will become even less of a thing than it is now. I think it'll be more and more difficult to sustain yourself on public intellectual work um, and that it'll become inclusive, increasingly stra- class stratified, which it kind of already is, um, but even more so. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I, and that's also just like gaming out from like today, things could obviously be different in, in various ways um, that I cannot predict, but, you know, if, if things stay relatively similar, I think class stratification is going to affect even more so than it has intellectual work. I don't know who counts as a public intellectual anymore. Me. The, the, well, obviously <laughs> you, but... Vouch. Uh, like, there's no... I mean, yeah, really. I mean, it's like Twitch Twitch right. people are public intellectuals or, or podcasters, not to denigrate right. ourselves here, uh, are public intellectuals. I don't know anymore. Like, it used to be, you know, uh, if you could get a book deal, which, you, you know, most people couldn't get, uh, but now no one you know, reads you could books. Be a books intellectual, books. but nobody reads books. They're on social media where anybody can spout off about anything. I know I do it all the time. Uh, Not and, me. I, everything you know, I tweet is very carefully considered. Every <laughs> single letter. <laughs> wow, Derek, that got too big a laugh. Damn. <laughs> so I, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to say what the. I mean, on the one hand, you could say we're in a time of. Uh, where there's never been more "quote unquote" public intellectuals, uh, and they're just exploding everywhere, and uh, everybody's got their favorite or their uh, group of favorites. On the other hand, you could say we're living in a time when there's n- really no public intellectuals because there's no how does how does one sort of adjudicate between uh, you know some quack you saw on YouTube and somebody who actually knows what they're talking about? I, it's it's harder than ever to do that. Yeah, I guess the way that I envision it is that like a, a public intellectual, you have to be making money from intellectual work. Um, that's how I mean, maybe that's like the classic. But even Marxist that, way how do, do you it. define intellectual work? Is it, you know, I, I would question like Jordan Peterson. Is Jordan Peterson doing intellectual work? Right, no, right. Uh, I would right. say, but it's you subjective. Know, how sure. do you, how like, do you what do you define? That? Yeah. And I mean, even more theoretically, like is intellectual labor labor? I mean, and this has been like a question that has bedeviled Marxists, including Marx himself, 
um, for you know 170 years at this point. And uh, again, I, I'll, I'll just point someone to this really interesting essay by the scholar Shlomo Avenari called Marx and the Intellectuals from 1967, which to me is sort of a really good discussion of um, the, the problem of intellectual labor qua labor, um, which is, uh, I think, really important and, and kind of underlays this discussion itself. Uh, <laughs> this last one is a little long. Basically... <laughs> No, I'm not even going to ask it. Well, I'll ask it and see if you No, can... you got to ask it. Just ask it the short version. You, you've you've yeah. started now. You got yeah, yeah, to do, 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 do it. I started. I got to do it. Okay. It's basically, um, what are the odds that the fabric of society, industrialized civilization can actually hold up during our lifetime? Basically, given <laughs> climate change, COVID, domestic international relations. This is from Nick Schilling, by the way. It seems as if the force of capital would rather destroy itself than reckon with the mounting crises they perpetuate. Yeah. So, well, that's like we the survive? Marxist prediction. That's like the Marxist prediction, right? Like, e- either we'll get communism or you'll get, I think the phrase is the mutual ruin of the contending classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's important. Like, I, I've really been. Uh, uh, affected by the by the work of Kim Stanley Robinson and his whole mm-hmm. point is that like for many people living in the North Atlantic climate won't be like apocalyptic it'll it'll be sort of like adjusting oneself like ever downward to the new realities of climate change so I've moved a little bit away from like climate apoc- uh, apocalypticism at least in my lifetime because I, I do think it's going to be variably affected around the world and I think that needs to be part of any political program um, and and that needs to really be taken seriously um, when one is trying to like game out what will happen in the future. Yeah, I agree with that. I think if you're living in a Western country and either rooting for or dreading the collapse of institutions in your lifetime, you're probably thinking about this on too short a time frame. Uh, It's going to still be a while before the really serious stuff impacts the developed world, uh, let alone, you know, people who are um, at a certain let's say, level of wealth and above uh, in the developed world. It, it, it's going to take time for these these things to work their way through um, societies around the world. And, and I, yeah, I, don't, I don't see it happening on, a, uh, on decades. I mean, I'm talking like 2100 and beyond is, is when you might see real breakdowns like that. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and go into some, like, uh, recommendations and media. Let's see. What'd you think of the movie 1917? I really hated it. (laughs) Alexander Bowen asked that. Oh, I I wish Alexander said why he hated it. I kind of (laughs) liked it. Um, And I guess it's because, like, when you read so much about the history of war, like, so many totally bizarre things happen all the time. So like oftentimes I hear criticisms of movies where like that was unrealistic, but really, really wacky stuff happens in war all the time. So that's sort of uh, ironically like the deep reading in history that I've done, you know, for my PhD and stuff makes me more open to things that might appear ridiculous on screen because so many ridiculous things actually do happen in wartime. And I thought it was pretty good, you know, like it was a pretty good portrayal of a, of a trench charge, um, you know, it was, I mean, a little unrealistic and like, it was, it was sort of like episode to episodes, sort of, uh, kind of like an, uh, odyssey. Um, but you know, it's a movie and it'll have to be, um, truncated in particular ways. I wish, um, uh, the listen, the listener said why they didn't like it. Um, but yeah, no, I liked it. I, I liked it pretty, pretty much. Hmm. I didn't see it. I don't go to movies as often as I would like anymore these days, but, uh, um, I can't remember why I didn't 
go see 1917. I think part of it had to do with, like, I saw a trailer for it and the concept of a British general saying, you have to go warn those men they're going into an ambush as though British generals didn't routinely send waves of people charging into machine gun fire throughout that war uh, just struck me as uh, weird, I guess. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't do anything for me. This is from James Bradley. Uh, are y'all into fiction, novels in particular? Who are your favorite writers of fiction, essayists? Well, uh, fiction, I already talked about the sci-fi stuff. In, mm-hmm. in terms of essayists, there's a lot of really interesting writers writing today. Uh, Christian Lorenzen, I quite enjoy. Lauren Euler, I quite enjoy. Um, those are probably my two favorite um, writers. I do think that there is a space for new long-form writing on U.S. foreign relations and international affairs. I think a lot of the people who are in the standard um, you know, places of intellectual discussion. I think they're of a different generation. So I think there's ready to be, there. there's new blood. Um, oh, another person that I, I wanted to mention was also E. Tammy Kim, who will be a forthcoming guest on the show. Uh, her writing is really excellent on labor and also Korea. Uh, and I would point people to her work as well. I don't get to read much fiction nowadays. Um, I, if people know of the newsletter that I do, I, I spend all day reading news basically and uh when i get done i just want to watch like a garbage half hour tv show and go to bed um so i don't what get tv much are you watching read. derek yeah uh, i'd be curious i i actually started watching i don't know do you know this show 1883 that's on paramount of course i started watching that too uh, yeah yeah i started watching that that's that's been pretty good uh, yeah, it's not bad. It's like kind of serious. It's like between Deadwood and like a, a more jokey show. It's like somewhere yeah, between those. Yeah, it's like a cleaned up, you know, Deadwood, but but uh, still in that that vein, I guess. Uh, yeah. And I like Sam, I like Sam Elliott, even though I guess he he's getting canceled now for for something. Uh, uh, apparently he had something bad to say about some movie that came out that I didn't see. Um, anyway, um, you know, in terms of my reading taste, when I do have a chance. I sort of run to sci-fi too. Uh, um, I already mentioned Dune. Um, you know, uh, Ender's Game. We mentioned Ender's Game. That's another one that I, I really liked. Did you read Orson's, that whole series? Orson Scott Card went off the, the deep end. I think I read the first three. Yeah, I read the first three books in that series. I read the um, whole thing, including like the Bean spin off series. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, got, I went deep, man. I was in thing. Ithaca for a year and I just read them all. Wow. What else? I mean, yeah, like Asimov, uh, Robert Heinlein, you know, those guys. I, I, I like that. Uh, the mid century kind of fiction. Yeah. Um, uh, and then if I want to just like zone out and, and read something completely dumb and, and not really think about it. Uh, the Jack Reacher books are, are actually pretty good for that. So, have you, know. you watched the show? I did watch the show. Yes, it was great. I thought it was great. I see my, a good, lot of myself yeah. in Reacher. You of know, course. I feel like of we're very similar yeah, characters. <laughs> so, like, I, they might have even based it on me just listening to my pods and reading Democracy <laughs> in Exile. So, yeah, I really saw myself in him. So that was, you know, identification. But yeah, Reacher is really fun. Um, which show I've been watching that Anna Delvey show, which is now like a uh, a meme on Twitter, which is uh, not a, a meme on TikTok, which has been really fun. Inventing Anna, I've been watching the show Ragnarok, <laughs> watching a lot of garbage TV recently, so it's been fun. 
Nice. Little more intellectual question here from Gurjot. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. What resources or books would you suggest for a novice like me who's very curious to learn about the history of the Cold War? I think that the two um, best books on the history of the Cold War are uh, John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the best intellectual history of U.S. strategy, except for the chapter on Reagan, which is way too praiseworthy of Reagan, in my opinion. But it was actually a chapter that was added uh, later in the book. It's in the second edition. I would read it um, just to get a sense of it. But um, that is the best intellectual history of geostrategy. And then I think um, the other major books on the Cold War, if you're just looking for a holistic perspective, um, I would recommend Paul Chamberlain's, I think it's called Rethinking the Long Peace. Um, Oh, it's called The Cold War's Killing Fields, Rethinking the Long Peace. And that really gets you into the effects of the Cold War in the global South in particular. Uh, And then the other classic is Odd Arna Westad's uh, The Global Cold War, which is this sort of, you know, ideological take on the issue. And then if you're learning to, uh, if you want to learn like where the whole thing came from, the sort of high diplomatic history of it is um, Mel Leffler's Preponderance of Power. Now, the, all the books I just recommended are really focused on, on strategy and sort of like big politics. There's many other books on the Cold War that get into things like the cultural Cold War, books, uh, books by uh, Penny von Eschen um, in particular. I would look at her scholarship. Um, there's books on human rights and different issues, but s- sort of the ones I gave you are just like the, the the true blue political strategic histories of the Cold War, which I think it's important to start from, and then you get more into the cultural histories, the economic histories, the social histories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I'm going to defer to you. Uh, if anybody wants to know uh, what to read about, like the Shiitization of Iran, uh, <laughs> I can make some recommendations there. But uh, I mean, I could, you know, there are some, uh, I guess, books in the Middle East field that covers some of that ground, but uh, in terms of direct Cold War histories, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm at a much more basic level. I'm reading like the Soviet experiment and you know histories of uh, on that side of things, but not uh, the deeper stuff. Yeah, and actually speaking, I, I really just gave U.S. centered histories. Um, probably the, the starting point for exploring the Cold War from the Soviet point of view is um, Vlad Zubek's Inside the Kremlin's Cold War from Stalin to Khrushchev. Um, he wrote that with Konstantin Pleshakov, um, and I would look into that. And also, if you want to get more of a global perspective, I would look at Odd Arna Westad's The Cold War, A World History, I believe it's called. And that's more a much more of a popular book and sort of like a narrative. A similar question from Walter Resch was recommendations for good book or website to deepen his knowledge on domestic history, on American history from a leftist perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, that's such an enormous subject. It's difficult to just name one book. I mean, one book that I like is Ira Katznelson's Fear Itself, which I think is really relevant to sort of the domestic politics of the um, United States and how racism informed a U.S. geostrategy. Um, Katznelson has another famous book, One Affirmative Action Was White, that I would look into um, Making a New Deal. Industrial Workers in Chicago, 1919 to 1939. 
Um, and that is, of course, by Elizabeth Cohen. Uh, I would also look at a, a sort of another big classic on domestic history is Bill Cronin's book on Chicago. Um, and again, this is like Nature's Metropolis. Uh, that's the name of the book. I would also look at that. Uh, and that's a really two really excellent starting points on sort of like U.S. history. Yeah, domestically, I'm, I'm, you know, if people are uh, interested in uh, books that cover the U.S. role in the Middle East, I mean, you know, anything by Rashid Khalidi is going to be good. Obviously, he's been on the program, so I'm biased to some degree. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, this is uh, this is definitely more Danny's area than mine. Shift gears again. I want to go into some requests and uh, some questions about specific countries or regions. So there were multiple requests for some China episodes on its history, the U.S. relations with it, uh, ability to challenge U.S. hegemony. Thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, I think China is already challenging U.S. hegemony to some extent, but it, there are limits to how far and how fast you can push that. I mean, China's fundamentally made itself a, a cornerstone of a global system that the United States, you know, pioneered in a sense or, or was, you know, responsible for creating. Um, and that's, that's why I, I you know, I, I balk at this talk of a cold war, like the, the, the interlinkages are so great that I don't know how you could, uh, could create the, the same kind of climate that existed in the 20th century, uh, between the U S and the Soviets. But, um, yeah, I, I, the big challenge that I think will happen eventually is going to be, I think, China leading the the move away from the dollar. But that's that's a long time <laughs> Good frame. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a that's a big haul. And and even now, uh, you know, this has become a, a sort of hot topic again with all the sanctions on Russia. I don't I don't think you're going to see a lot of movement in that direction. But over time, I think it'll happen. I do think it'll happen. Um, you know, but again, it, it's um, there's only so much you can do to challenge the U.S. within the system that's been created by the U.S. that the U.S. has dominated for so long. Um, and if you're not, if you don't break out of that somehow, and I, I don't even know what that would look like at this point, um, it's it's uh, it's it's limited. The extent to which you can just sort of supplant the United States is is limited, and it will take uh, take time to, I think, achieve. Yeah, I I think that Chinese hegemony in East Asia is almost inevitable in the next let's say fifty years. I don't see how that doesn't happen. Um, but barring that, uh, it's difficult to make predictions. Besides that, Archie McClellan. He asks Scotland, will it ever be independent? I think so. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go really? out on a limb and say that the UK is going to to slowly divide itself into sort of a more federated structure. Um, it's just and it's just so nice too in terms of like historical moments. Like it, you know, it really is where North Atlantic colonialism gets going with England conquering the re the rest of the island and then expanding into Ireland, and then just it's it's coming apart. Um, obviously, I don't think it'll be totally apart. I think they'll be still very closely connected in, in, in federated structure. Um, but it's just, it's too good for me not to, you know, uh, appreciate as sort of the beauty of history, the coming together and then the coming apart. But Derek, you, you don't think so? I'm skeptical. I mean, I'm, I'm on record as favoring a return to the Dane law. Uh, you know, forget breaking up. We actually up the live UK. our I wanna, lives. By I want to break up England. 
Uh, I want to break up England itself. Uh, let's let's go deep on this. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah bring I don't back know. Mercia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wessex, Mercia, all these places. Um, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what the trigger would be. I mean, if Brexit didn't do it, and Brexit clearly hasn't done it. Um, I mean, I guess over time, you don't know. You just don't know how people's, um, you know, generally, generationally, what kind of, of, of shifts. There's clearly a, a big divide right now. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I hesitate to say it's like 50 50, uh, but, you know, it's, it's clearly, um, you know, there's not a, a solid majority uh, of Scots that, who are in favor of, of independence. Uh, at this point, it doesn't seem like. Um, yeah, over time, maybe. I don't know. I, I just don't. I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time envisioning the scenario that would make that happen. But maybe it, it'll just be a slow, steady thing. Like, uh, you know, Brexit, the effects of Brexit will wear on over time. And you'll have uh, uh, just a grinding down of, of people's feelings of uh, loyalty or union or, or support for the union or, or whatever. And, and they'll like drift apart but even there i don't there's got to be a mechanism for holding another referendum which means you've got to convince the uk government to go along with that and i it's 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 hard to see the scenario uh, where that would play out staying in the same neighborhood we have a request from shout out to his family for an episode on modern irish politics oh yeah we definitely should do that yeah that'd be yeah. fun yeah, that's a that's a good one. We should do one of the, one of those pretty soon. We should do one on China. And we should do one on Ireland. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's a good idea. Bizaklitari, biz Bizaklitari. I have no idea what that word. Sorry, dear patron, that I didn't get your username right. But I would love a deep dive into the U.S. involvement with Spain during the 20th century, after the Spanish American War, the American position during the rise of the Spanish Republic, support of Franco uh, while the U.S. was allied with the Soviets, uh, and all the way. Uh, after the development of the reinstated monarchy with the help of the German SPD, and it's entering NATO. This was a very specific request. Uh, I guess it would take a few episodes, but what the heck? I got time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we should, we should do one. I, I mean, know we Nando's could do into Spanish one. history. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we've got lots of series ideas, but that, that could be on the list. I don't know how far, how fast we'd get to it, but sure. Yeah. We also have someone, Robert Sayer, uh, was interested in us covering U.S. interactions with France and de Gaulle after World War II. I thought that was oh, that would be an interesting series. I know, uh, I know someone who studies that period of French history. We should, we should definitely do uh, yeah. that one too because that's also very interesting in the context of Algeria and the coup. You know, the uh, the, the military officers who basically became insurgents, um, right? To, to counter Algerian independence. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that would be a really good one. Yeah. From Ian Borzuk, uh, I'd love to hear both your thoughts on Canada's foreign policy role as it relates to America. Does it have one? I mean, I don't know. You guys, uh, work this out with me. Like, does Canada <laughs> differ from the U.S. in any well, meaningful way? Well, it's trade, right? Uh, in, in foreign well, policy. Well, they're our number one trading partner, Well, sure. Right? I mean, there's commercial... There's a commercial relationship. I, I just... Uh, I mean, I don't know if the 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 question is like, how, what foreign policy role does Canada play vis-a-vis the U.S. in other parts of the world? Um, I, you know, it's kind of like the U.K. There's sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever the U.S. Uh, says, we're, we're we're going with that. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's part of the family, you know, in a sense. Especially, I mean, especially since Brexit, this this sort of the Anglo, I guess, the Anglo. 
community, if you, you know, you can add Australia to that, you know, seems more and more to be kind of uh, acting in concert with one another. Yeah. Or were they, is Canada an AUKUS? No, Canada's not an AUKUS. Um, It'd be AUKUSK. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, the, they're, they're mirroring everything the United States and the EU do in terms of, uh, Ukraine, uh, in terms of China, I don't see any meaningful difference. I mean, there was that dust up over the, the lady from Huawei. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But you know that, and that was, I mean, that was even, that was the Canadian government arresting this person, uh, on behalf of the United States for alleged <laughs> sanctions violations during the Trump presidency, when relations between the United States and Canada were at their, uh, lowest ebb, I would think in, in the last, uh, uh, I don't, I can't even imagine how long it's been. Uh, they still did. They still went along with that. So I, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's not a meaningful distinction. I think it's a distinction without a difference as they there used you to go. say, as they say, from Tom Strand, do you have any thoughts on Amnesty's uh, new report on Israel and the Palestinians classifying it as an apartheid system? I mean, they're they're latecomers to this. Yeah, uh, Betzalem already designated, already classified it as uh, apartheid, and and I think Human Rights Watch already classified it as apartheid. I guess what was new in the Amnesty report is they they were more inclusive of Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel. Uh, and the treatment that they suffer, the sort of second-class citizen treatment that they suffer. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, what thoughts I have other than I agree with the conclusion, and I don't think anything about it is going to change. That's the, those are the only two thoughts I really have. So these questions are sort of about present circumstances. Matthew Hege, Hege, again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. Love the show. Thank you for doing it. I've heard Danny say many times that leftists in America don't know who controls the levers of power in America. Maybe I missed it, but I would love for him to tell us what group he thinks it is and expound on strategies to confront them and enact change. And that's a really good question. And I think one of the frustrations is that we don't really know. Um, I think that power has been dispersed throughout public and private institutions that are both headquartered in the United States and headquartered around the world. Um, and this is why, you know, when, when I was on the Bernie team, one of the things that I thought would be most important to do would just to be... To, to literally create a task force that would take that as their task to map the power relations, you know, do an old school style labor power relations map of where power lies, who makes decisions where and how they um, shape decisions. Um, you know, in some sense also, I think there's a limit to human agency um, in the larger structure as a whole. Um, and we have to get a handle on that. But I think the truth is one of the most important things that the left could do, particularly as it's out of power and really has no way, shape, or form of informing U.S. foreign policy, is to begin to map these very complex power relations and, and begin to you know identify points where one could make meaningful change or, or, or have a meaningful influence uh, on um, weak points of the structure. Um, so instead of you know just just identifying the U.S. state as a unitary actor, which it you know you could do that if you're thinking at the hyper macro level, like saying the United States acts in the world, that's not inaccurate. But when we're thinking about it from a domestic political perspective, really getting more fine-grained in our power analysis of the structures of both the state and also what are termed parastatal institutions, institutions that are not formally part of the state, but nevertheless perform what might be properly called state functions, like developing strategy, or even if you want to be more expansive about it, making weapons and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be very valuable. And, and the fact is that the, the 
longer we're in the the moment of the really almighty presidency as Congress, especially in foreign policy, uh, surrenders any role that it might once have had, you see the proliferation of these like semi-public, shady kind of uh, institutions. And, and every once in a while, the, the curtain gets pulled back. Like, uh, you know, in the moment after the Iraq war, when, you know, we, everybody was learning about the defense policy board and, uh, you know, uh, these advisory committees. And uh, I think people are, are back to being kind of blissfully unaware of this stuff. Like, I don't, I don't even think we have a great handle on, on the national security council, which everybody knows exists, but what actually goes on, what are, what are actually the relationships between members of the council and, and, you know, uh, federal departments, the Department of Defense, the the CIA, et cetera, uh, the relationship between the White House and these various things, which always, I mean, th- those dynamics always change between administrations and within administrations over the, over the course of their time in office. But yeah, I, I feel like that would be a very valuable thing to try and understand. Uh, and that's not even getting into the, the external players, some of whom are, are well-known, but many are not. Well, actually, the other question in this category was you guys pretty well covered, which was what do you think of the shortcomings of the American left's position when it comes to understanding liberalism and international relations? Like this from Carl Thomas. To me, the big one would be overemphasizing the role of the evil empire, aka the USA, and neglecting the internal dynamics of other societies. That's that, that's mm-hmm. true, um, but I think there. But is that's true a- of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a cardinal fact of the U.S. foreign policy establishment across the board that we don't understand how other countries work. We don't care. We don't have any cognitive empathy for how they react to, to what the United States does or might react. Uh, that's just a fact of life for, for every facet of U.S. foreign policy. And, and I would say I'm very curious what you think about this, uh, both of you. Um, but I, I would say that there's a tendency to overemphasize the, the brilliance of the U.S. intelligence community, kind of viewing them as actors who are able to manipulate power uh, and to manipulate the world in a kind of one-to-one relationship. Um, I mean, at least from my study of history, I, I, I think that these people are oftentimes inept, oftentimes don't know what they're doing, oftentimes stumble into situations, though there's a tendency to treat everyone like they're kind of a, a Jack Bauer-type person who, who's really able to shape things from within the confines of the intelligence community. Um, I also think that there is a problem, and I, I, I had a long discussion with Aaron Good about this, um, kind of about like the idea that if only people knew the truth, then things would be different. Um, and I just don't think um, things work that way. I don't think the exposure of state lies um, will necessarily lead to that. I mean, I think there there is a general consensus that the U.S. state has done terrible things in the past. People know these things. It's not 1985 where people really don't think about them. Um, but I, I think that, that, that there hasn't been change for a, a multitude of other reasons. So, I guess to just make it clear, an overemphasis on the um, effectiveness in the intelligence community on one hand, and on the other hand, this sort of, I would say, liberal belief that the exposure of information will inevitably lead to some form of genuine political change. I would definitely second the belief in an all-powerful U.S. intelligence establishment or, or the deep state kind of with its fingers everywhere. Yeah, I think this. you see this... Every time there's an event anywhere, no matter no matter how kind of 
off the the normal map it might be. There's a coup somewhere in Africa or in Southeast Asia or wherever. And and it's the response, instead of saying, you know, asking more broadly, uh, did the United States contribute to this in any way? So let's take like a country like Mali, which has had a couple of coups over the last, last couple of years. Instead of asking questions about how the United States has contributed to uh, instability in Mali, has contributed to a failed a counterterrorism mission in Mali has contributed to training the 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 sort of elite military forces that wind up uh, usually wind up you know uh, leading these coups. Uh, your people's thoughts immediately seem to jump to like, oh, how was the CIA involved in this? Like, what did what does America get out of this? And it's that's not always necessarily the way it works. Like, it's not always uh, that the CIA is in control of the situation. Uh, oftentimes, because uh, the United States is the hegemon hegemonic power, and the United States does try to be involved everywhere at all times, we do contribute to these things. Uh, in ways that aren't always obvious. But I, I think the tendency to look at it from the perspective of, like, we're pulling all the strings from Washington uh, kind of obfuscates some of these other questions that should be asked. And ironically, it plays into the CIA's own propaganda of itself as this sort of world-spanning, <laughs> hyper-effective institution, um, you know, which we should be careful to accept. Well, that's probably a good place to leave it. Everyone... Um, uh, Subscribe if you haven't already. Spread the show, please. You know, review us on Apple and elsewhere. It, it turns out these things actually matter. That's why everyone says it. Uh, smash that subscribe button and like button. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, to our patrons who ask the questions, we really do appreciate it and thank you so much. And yeah, thanks we will for your see support. You. And uh, yeah, you know, couldn't couldn't do this without you guys. Uh, yeah, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.